We're really going to be kind of all over the place, but, but Exodus, if you really want to go anywhere, Exodus would be a great place for you to go. Exodus chapter 6 and Exodus chapter 13. Last week, we began a journey through one of the most rich texts in all of sacred scripture. That text is, is, is Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21 and making the way through verse 26. But we could not break this text apart into uh, one or two sermons. It seemed best to take the text and let it speak for itself, to make our way through it and see the argument that the Apostle Paul is making because his whole premise as he's made his way through the book of Romans is we are in need of redemption. We are in need of salvation. We are in need of deliverance. We are in need of one to propitiate, to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. And then he lays this argument out and he makes it clear that the only means of redemption that can be had by any soul is through the work of Jesus Christ. Not only his work, but his redemptive work, his his propitiatory work. And then ultimately, as we lay hold of him by faith, those blessed works are applied to us. But I think it best that we take some time to examine each of these blessed words. Because as a Jew would have been reading through this, that word redemption would have been heavy and rich with meaning. It would not have been a word that we read past rather quickly. It would have been a word that would have cast them all the way back into the moment of the exodus. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is to set forth Christ as our redemption. The sermon in a sentence is rather simple. It's we have redemption through Jesus Christ. He is the only means of redemption. He is the only substance of all of those shadows in the Old Testament. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is to fill the cup of that word redemption. I want us to taste it the same way that the Jews would have as they read this. They would have seen it so full. And so I hope this morning is to do just that. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll read Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through verse 26. And I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we come longing to see. Lord, we're grateful that you have given us eyes to see and to behold the truths of Scripture. And we ask that by the Holy Spirit that you would give those eyes great illumination this morning. Would you fill this word full for us? Would you allow us to never gloss over it without a moment of adoration? For Father, we know that through Christ and through Christ alone is redemption. And so Father, we ask, would you help us to savor this redemption? Would you remind us of who we were? Would you remind us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were enslaved to sin And Lord, see that the price of redemption that was set forth is the most glorious price of your son, Christ. And may we adore him all the more for it. It is in his name and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, my hope is to walk us through redemption in really two ways. 
I want to fill it full. I want us to understand what it means to be redeemed. And we'll look at Exodus chapter 6 and Exodus chapter 13 for our understanding of that. But the last thing that I want us to do is to understand who the Redeemer is. There's two real things that we need to understand from this word redemption. We need to understand what it means to be redeemed. But then we need to ask the question, who is qualified to be our Redeemer? Because if we don't have a redeemer, then we can understand the word redeem all we'd like. But unless that redeemer comes and unless that redeemer is willing to redeem, then we really would have no redemption at all. And so with that said, let's turn our attention to Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus chapter 6, we have this rather unique occurrence of the Lord coming to Moses and telling him of a redemption that will take place. And I'd like to just read that text for you. Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In verse 1, it says this, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I will establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people. I will, put your, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, there are a couple of things that I think are important for us to understand from this text before we dive into the word redemption. First, we need to remember that the people that God is writing to in, Genesis, in Exodus chapter 6 is his covenant people. Now, the reason this is so important is because in Genesis chapter 15, God covenants with Abraham. And as he covenants with Abraham, he has this exodus in mind. Not only does he have this exodus in mind, he tells Abraham flat out that your people will go into slavery. And when they go into slavery, then I will deliver them out with a strong hand. Now, the reason this is important for us to understand is because God does not forget his covenants. God does not overlook his covenants. He's always acting in perfect accordance with them. And in Genesis chapter 15, when this covenant covenant is made, it is made to make absolute certainty that they will go into slavery, but at the exact same time, it is an absolute certainty that they will be delivered. God keeps his covenant promises. And not only does God keep his covenant promises, he hears his covenant people. I want you to notice the language that he has here. As you examine this text, it says, moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Now, oftentimes when we deal with the word redemption, I think we often forget what we have been redeemed from. We don't taste it as bitter. And even as we came to this table and we drank that sweet cup and we tasted that bread that nourished us, during the days of Passover, that would not have been the case. They would have tasted bitterness. They would have been reminded of the bitterness of slavery. They would have been reminded of all the difficulties, trials and tribulations that they endured as they were slaves in Egypt. You see, when we deal with this word redemption, the word redemption will never be lovely until we understand that we have genuinely been redeemed from an evil and a wicked master that long for nothing more than our destruction. In Romans chapter 6 and 7, we'll see this developed more fully. But that master that we once had, the master that the the Israelites had as as they were in Egypt, 
was a master that was cruel and violent and hateful and wicked and desired nothing more than to see them suppressed, desired nothing more to see them destroyed and really just used for their own ends and means. This is a wicked master. This is one whom we need to be redeemed from. But as we also see in this text, the Israelites did not have the ability to redeem themselves. Even though they were with great number, that they were strong, they were powerful, they had been absolutely abused into a position of, of, of belief, of, of, of frailty and feebleness. And it must be then that one would come to redeem them because they are without power in and of themselves. They cannot redeem themselves. And then God does something that he does time and time again. He promises. I want you to remember that, that Exodus chapter 6 is a decent amount of time before the actual Exodus occurs. Here we see the God make, this God make a great promise. He testifies to his coming deliverance and redemption from slavery. He promises that it will come. And when he promises it will come, brothers and sisters, for those of us who look at God, believe him, and know him as he is, then we know most certainly that his saying is his doing. At this very moment, Moses can take it to the bank that God will redeem, that he is able. And not only is he able, but he swears by his own name. Up until this point, God had not given his divine name. He gives it in Exodus chapter 3 when he appears to Moses in the burning bush. But from this point forward, when we see God promise this redemption, this salvation, this deliverance from slavery, he promises it by his name. He begins his promise with, I am the Lord, and he concludes it with, I am the Lord. The beauty of this is God stakes his reputation, his glory on his ability to redeem, on him fulfilling the promise that he has made. He hears their groaning. He hears their sorrow. And then he promises that he will bring about deliverance and redemption and that that redemption will bring him glory, honor, and praise. They will know him as the I am after this deliverance occurs. But then he promises the way that he will do it. And I want to point these two things out because they are vitally important. He says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And here we see God promise not only that he will do it, but how he will do it. He will deliver it with his outstretched arm. He will deliver, it with, deliver them with great power and might. And as we'll see even this coming Wednesday, these miracles, these plagues that come are these great acts of judgment. And he demonstrates his authority and he conquers every god of Egypt. He places every single one of them underfoot and he declares that he is the Lord. He is the I am to the Egyptians. But he will declare to his people, that he is the redeemer. He is the one who is able to save and save to the uttermost. He is the one who will deliver from slavery and bondage. And in this particular case, he will deliver from slavery and bondage to Egypt. And he comes forth and he demonstrates this great power, this great might. And the final blow is that he slaughters the firstborn of everyone who is not covered by the blood of a lamb. And as he goes forth in that night, you can imagine the wails of mothers waking up and seeing their firstborn dead because they did not believe God. You can imagine the sorrow that filled that place. But you can also imagine in those moments the mother who woke up to see her firstborn live. As she would go to his bedroom, she would go and perhaps even with great fear and trembling because it has already been told to her that unless he is covered by the blood of a lamb, he will perish. And she goes and she grabs him and as she grabs him, he, she feels him breathing, and she knows God is gracious. He is the Redeemer. 
And then immediately after that, they gather their belongings, and not only their belongings, but they plunder the Egyptians. They make their way out, and God delivers them with this great outstretched might of parting a sea and delivering them into a land that he has promised. He is the great Redeemer. And he redeems from slavery. He redeems from oppression. He redeems from all of this wickedness that the Egyptians have thrust onto the Israelites. He has promised these things will come to pass. And brothers and sisters, God is faithful. The promises that he makes, he keeps. And he keeps them because it is his glory that is on the line. That's why when we read passages like Psalm 23, what does he say? It's for his name's sake that he delivers. It's for his name's sake that we come to the table. It's for his name's sake that he leads us beside waters. It's all for his glory. And we see him here as the Redeemer. So in Romans chapter 3, when they hear this word, this is the language that they would would have been hearing. This is what filled that cup of redemption. They saw that this delivery from Egypt was this delivery that was ultimately promised and ultimately brought about by the person and work of Jesus Christ, which we'll see here in a moment. But this redemption, this idea is how they would understand what it means to be redeemed. Have I been freed would be the question they would have asked. Have I been delivered? But this is not their only understanding of redemption because just shortly after the exodus, actually at the conclusion of it, God essentially lays claim of every firstborn. I want you to notice this passage in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 11 through 16. Now, this is really important language because it's really the institution of this concept of a firstborn. It's God ordaining it. And really, this is the beginning of a glorious thread that runs throughout the entirety of Scripture. And I would actually say goes into eternity. Notice the language of Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast is mine. Why is it his? It's his by purchase. Because in that very moment of the Passover, God lays claim to every firstborn, past, present, and future. He declares they are mine. And apart from my grace, not a single life would come into existence. Apart from him bestowing forbearance and patience and mercy, not a single soul would ever breathe. Why? Because God is just. And that's that other crux of Romans 3. If he's just and he's not the justifier, then there are no firstborn. And any firstborn that would draw draw breath must be instantly put to death. But not just does he lay claim of them because he has right over them. It goes on in verse 11 through 16. It says this, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, I love the when as if it is not up to chance. As he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first who opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animal. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt." Not only does God demand every firstborn, they belong to him by right of purchase. But secondly, we see this language of redemption set forth. God demands a price of redemption for every man and beast. 
Now, Numbers helps us clarify this. Really, in Numbers chapter 18, verse 16 and 17, we see this kind of play out in a way that's a, a bit more understandable. For the firstborn son, he is, to re- he is to receive five shekels of silver. Now, here's what's most important. Never is a firstborn son ever to die. He is never to have his blood shed. Instead, there is a price that would be paid. That price would be five shekels shekels of silver. So they would go, they would pay that. And the whole premise is to say that we know this life belongs to the Lord and I must pay for him to live. The whole concept is this is the firstborn. This is the one who opened the womb. This is the one who really declares that life can still be had. And I know that all life finds its origin in you. And apart from payment, we know that there is no reason for this boy to live. He is the firstborn, and the firstborn must be redeemed. The firstborn son must have a price paid. But then there is this language, and it is kind of peculiar. If you read through uh, Exodus chapter 13, there's this parallel that's set forth that is rather peculiar. The parallel is every firstborn son, every man must be redeemed, and he must be redeemed with a price. He must be paid for. But then immediately after that, he specifies, and he specifies it with a donkey. This donkey is an unclean animal. He is not to be eaten. He is set apart as something that is rather filthy. He is an animal of burden. And if that animal is born, the first one born must either be redeemed, which means that a a lamb, a clean animal, must be slain in its place, or it must die. Now, why must it die? Because every unclean thing must be either redeemed or condemned. Every unclean thing must be either condemned or redeemed. There is no middle ground. And as the Lord sets this in place in Exodus chapter 13, and we really see it builds from there, the whole concept is every unclean thing deserves to die. Every one of them. And the beauty of this is that we see in in the case of the donkey, which is a rather odd introduction to this text, In the case of this donkey, the only means by which this donkey can live is if the blood of a lamb is shed. Because he is unclean, that animal deserves to die. And ultimately, if not for redemption, it would. You see, when the Jews would read Romans chapter 3, they would think, oh, there must be redemption for the firstborn. But I think what is often forgotten is that we always think of ourselves as that firstborn. And we always think of ourselves I think more importantly as the clean firstborn. It is not so. In Genesis chapter 3, when the fall occurs, from that point forward, every human being that is born, he is not born clean. He is born unclean. Psalm makes it abundantly clear that we are brought forth in iniquity. That from the moment that we breathe our first breath, that we are in rebellion against God because of our father Adam and certainly because of our own trespass, our refusal to bow to him in faith. The man, the natural man is born unclean. And so when they would read this, perhaps it is that they would interject, ah, yes, there must be a price paid for me. There must be five shekels. And they would not have understood that they are not the man that's mentioned here. They're the donkey. They're the ones who are in need of redemption. They're the ones who have to have the blood of a lamb shed for them. And perhaps it is in this moment they would say, ah, the redemption price was not five shekels. It was the blood of a lamb who is the propitiation that we will see next week. And so they would see the redemption from slavery. They would see the redemption of those who were unclean, that firstborn son that was ultimately given over to death unless he be redeemed. 
But then that leads us to the second question that we have this morning. Not only what is redemption, but who is fit for redemption? Because if there must be someone to have blood shed for us, what, 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 what must he be? Thankfully, we have an excellent example in the book of Ruth. But Leviticus chapter 25, 25 kind of sets this whole principle forth so that we can understand Ruth a bit more fully. Leviticus 25, 25 says this, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. You see, God set up, God provided a means of redemption for those who sold their wealth and ultimately themselves. If you pay very close attention to the end of Genesis, you'll discover that there were many who were making their way to Joseph and selling their land and ultimately themselves into slavery to Egypt. They come, they offer all their goods, but they need food. And they've run out of goods. They cannot buy it any longer. And so ultimately they give themselves over to Egypt and they say, buy me, buy my land. And they sell themselves into slavery. They have become so impoverished that this is their only means of redemption. The only means by which they can eat, that they can have food, is if they sell themselves. But God has provided in Leviticus 25, if there be a redeemer, if there be one who is your brother, then he can come and he can buy that back. He can redeem. So let's consider the story of Ruth for just a moment. I would imagine all of you are quite familiar with this story. Ruth, this woman who makes her way back to Israel, was the wife of an Israelite who perished. She makes her way back and she catches the attention, or perhaps better yet, he catches the attention. Boaz catches the attention of Ruth. Now Naomi looks at her and says, hey, this man is a kinsman. He is one who can redeem. He's the one who can buy you. Now, as this, as this unfolds, there's essentially this, this oddity because the oddity is not that, that, uh, that the Redeemer comes for the land. The oddity is that in the story of Ruth, Boaz doesn't come for the land. Boaz doesn't want what will enrich him. Instead, he goes after Ruth. His desire is to redeem her, and anything else is really extra. And we see this really clearly played out because there is someone closer. There's a different Redeemer. There's one who can buy Ruth, but he, he doesn't really want Ruth. He wants the land. He wants something that will enrich him. So Boaz challenges him and says, well, you must take Ruth also. And immediately fear strikes him because he does not want to make his own wife angry. And, and, Ruth, and Boaz says, I'll redeem her. Now, what must this redeemer be? This redeemer had to have relationship to the one redeemed. He had to have some correlation, some moment in the history that bound them together. But not only did there have to be one who is familiar, one who is, by familiar, I mean familial in the family to say the to say. But going on, the Redeemer had to be willing to redeem. Now, this is the one that's most peculiar to me. Why would anyone redeem? I mean, why would anyone go in to buy that? Oh, my goodness, the headache. They already have their own riches. They already have their own wealth. Why would they go forth and redeem? And in this particular case, redeem a woman who really should be put away. Not only is she not an Israelite, she is, ha she is a widow. There's really nothing in her that would draw Boaz to her. But here we see Boaz even be willing to redeem this woman who should be put away and not thought of really ever again. And yet he's willing. But not only is he willing, there's also a price that must be paid. Now, Boaz, we know, was one of great wealth. He had the resources. But the willingness to use these resources for the sake of buying this woman? I mean, it would have been odd at best, peculiar even, to see a man go and to buy this woman, to buy her out of her poverty, to buy her out of her destitute state, and to place her into a position that really will find itself in the lineage of our Lord. 
As a matter of fact, the conclusion of the book of Ruth is an exaltation of this line. It says that this woman, this Ruth, is the woman that's in the line of David. How in the world, why would this man do this? So what must a redeemer be? A redeemer must see and he must, he must have relation to the one redeemed. He must be willing and lastly, he must have the resources for redemption. This is what they would hear. As the Jews heard this word in Romans chapter 3, this redemption that's in Christ Jesus, they would have heard of redemption from slavery. They would have heard redemption of the firstborn. And then they would have thought of this redeemer, this one who is not only close, not only willing, but able. And that leads us to really place ourselves back in Romans chapter 3 so that we can understand what Paul is actually saying here. Because we read through this and we're like, oh, yes, redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And we're glad and we find ourselves rejoicing. Yes, redemption. But brothers and sisters, we don't understand the depth of redemption that occurred. We think it's something light to redeem from death. Brothers and sisters, do you think it's light that God delivered Egypt from bondage and slavery in Egypt? No, it is not light. It is powerful. It is miraculous. But it's a shadow. It is not the substance of redemption. You see, when we look back at the story of Exodus, Jude helps us understand exactly what unfolds here. Jude chapter 5 says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, who delivered? Who was that mighty outstretched hand? Christ is the outstretched arm that redeemed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus outstretched his arms to redeem his covenant people from slavery to sin. It is an infinitely greater task to redeem from sin than to redeem from Egypt. The whole premise here is that as the Jews heard the word redemption, they looked back and they said, oh, yes, freed from Egypt. And then Paul replaces it. He says, now look at the substance. You are are slaves to sin and Christ redeems. He is able. He is that outstretched hand that we see. And we can finally, perhaps better yet, understand what Romans 7, 24 is. Paul considers his freedom from sin. He says this, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the Redeemer. He redeems them from slavery. What is the redemption price? The redemption price is the death of the firstborn. When we come to this table, we think of it often, we meditate upon it. But what we must see there is the price of redemption. Blood shed, a body broken. And how sweet it is that Christ drank the cup of God's wrath, his blood was shed that we might come and feast on the price of redemption and that it might be sweet to us. It was his outstretched arm that redeemed. And so when the question is asked, who will deliver me from this body of death? We say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. I have been redeemed. But there is this case of the firstborn as well. As we look forward and we see this concept of the firstborn. There must be a payment made. I think that we often overlook this grand entry of our Lord into Jerusalem. Why a donkey? Why a donkey? Why would he make his way in on donkey? And actually, if you were to do a study of the donkey in the Old Testament, it finds its way all the way into Zechariah. It runs throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. It's astonishing, really. But as you see our Lord enter in, 
we see this grand mixture of Exodus 13, 13. Because the spotless, clean lamb rides into, the, into Jerusalem on an unclean animal to redeem an unclean people. He makes his way in. He rides this unclean beast of burden into Jerusalem to be heralded as the great king, only to be crucified a week later. In this moment, in this very simple, often overlooked occurrence, Jesus essentially looks at Exodus 13, 13, and he says, the clean lamb will die for the donkeys. Now, what's so difficult for us is to identify ourselves with the donkey. We think of ourselves far, far too highly. Brothers and sisters, if we understand that we are in sin, that we have rebelled against the holy God, then we would be glad to identify with the donkeys to know that Christ redeems them. Because even in Exodus 13, the whole concept is the unclean must die or be redeemed. Praise be to God he redeems. But not only do we see it in that particular case, but we see it a bit further. Have you ever noticed there's no price demanded for any child after the first? It's only the firstborn that demands a price. The secondborn, his price has ultimately been paid. There's no demand placed on him at all. The second child essentially comes into the world and he would, he would perhaps have the, have the privilege of watching his father sacrifice uh, firstborn animals, but he would never understand this idea of the, the firstborn son had to pay a price. And what we ultimately see in this picture is the reason that there is no price for the secondborn is because the firstborn paid it. The firstborn's price was paid. Now, all throughout the scriptures, just to give you a couple, Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Colossians 1, 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our firstborn. He is our firstborn who, as he opens the womb of the Spirit, as the tomb opens, it is a declaration that the price of death has been paid. And not only has the price of death been paid, the price of death has been paid not just for the secondborn or the thirdborn, but the price has been paid for a multitude without number, myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands. Jesus is the firstborn of life and life eternal. And he bestows it on all of those who find their hope, their joy, their peace, their, their faith rest on him. The new birth is what Jesus is giving out as the firstborn. Hebrews chapter 12 helps us understand this a bit more fully. Speaking of what we come to as we look to the firstborn son. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn. Brothers and sisters, the church is the assembly of the firstborn. He is our elder brother. Not only is he the assembly of the firstborn, it goes on to say, who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We are the church of the firstborn. We have been purchased with his blood. He has paid the price. He is our redeemer. Now, what does it mean that he is our redeemer? Because those three things that must be present, he must be near us, he must be like us, he must have the resources, and lastly, he must have the willingness. 
What is a redeemer? A redeemer is one who has all three of these things, but the one that is perhaps most peculiar is that he has the willingness. I mean, certainly we can understand from the incarnation that he had the right because he was made like his brothers in every way. The incarnation matters. Not only does the incarnation matter, our understanding of it matters. He must be truly, truly man. He must be made like us in every way. And that means that he has to have the resources because he was truly man. He, must, he, he has the right, he has the ability to pay man's debt. We also know that he was truly God so as to possess sufficient power and riches to see the debt pay in full. He must be both. He must be truly God and truly man. We know from the scriptures that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But this mediator's willingness is what still floors me. Because praise be to God, he had the ability, he had the riches, of course he had the riches. He is the one who owns uh, the, the cattle of 10,000 hills. He possesses all wealth. It is his. To condescend, to take on the form of a servant, become obedient even to the point of death on a cross. What a staggering demonstration of the God of faithfulness and the God of grace and mercy. But his willingness still is what is staggering. Certainly, it is a demonstration of his power to become incarnate, to rule over and to show that sin is not a snare too great for him. But his willingness. Here is what amazes. Yes, he is the redeemer who has the right because he was made like us in every way. Yes, he has the ability to be a redeemer because he is truly God and truly man. But it is grace that lavishes, that causes that great willingness the grace of God, this beginning even as we look back into Romans chapter 3 and it says, and are justified by his grace, that grace is his willingness. That grace is him saying, not only do I possess the right, not only do I possess the riches necessary, but more than anything else, I possess the willingness. Praise be to God that he is a willing redeemer because this is the lamb slain for donkeys. This is the secondborn seeing the inheritance of the firstborn because he paid it and he paid it in full. What we have in our Lord Jesus Christ is the redemption that comes by his blood. We are freed from slavery to sin. We are, fr we are freed from all of the snares of our enemy. Perhaps better yet, we are freed from the world, the flesh, and the devil. All are conquered underneath his feet. And as he breaks forth of that tomb, the womb of heaven opens. And we, by his grace and his willingness to redeem, enter into life and life eternal. Jesus is our redeemer. 